Welcome to Building the Future, hosted by Kevin Horick. With millions of listeners a month, Building the Future has quickly become one of the fastest rising programs with a focus on interviewing startups, entrepreneurs, investors, CEOs, and more. The radio and TV show airs in 15 markets across the globe, including Silicon Valley. For full showtimes, past episodes, or to sponsor the show, please visit buildingthefutureshow.com. Welcome back to the show. Today we have Rich Tyson. He's the president at CEO Builder. Rich, welcome to the show. Thank you, Kevin. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on the show. I think what you guys are doing at CEO Builder is really innovative and cool, but maybe before we get into all that, let's get to know you a little bit better and start off with where you grew up. Okay. Well, I, I'm an Air Force rat, so I was born uh, on a, actually an Army base. Uh, my dad was uh, in the Army Air Corps, and so this goes way back. I was Very born cool. in 1950, so I'm a, I'm a 70-year-old youngster. But um, uh, it was El Paso, Texas, okay. and Fort Bliss. Uh, uh, interesting name, a name for a man, obviously, because El Paso has never been known as a real blissful place. But uh, uh, William Beaumont Hospital at Fort Bliss on an Army base. And then I, I grew up all over. Uh, Dad was stationed in many different places. And that included uh, stops in uh, Utah at Hill Air Force Base. We lived in Boulder, Colorado, Pueblo, Colorado, Tela, Utah, uh, Sacramento, Tachikawa, Japan. Wow. Uh, a lot of different places. So uh, those are just a few of the the main stops along the way. Very cool. So you went to university, well, a few universities. Walk us through what you mm -hmm. took and why. Oh, okay. Well, I, I started off at Utah State University up in Logan, Utah. And initially I saw myself as a future doctor. And oh, so I was pursuing the, the fundamental basic courses of pre-med. Uh, and it, that seemed to be just a great idea until I got hit by a chemistry buzzsaw. And uh, that uh, pretty much took me out of the desire to, to be a doctor. I, I just didn't understand the concepts of chemistry nearly well enough. Of course, as a freshman, I was immature enough to, that I didn't put any more effort into it, decided to, to change my major. Um, I didn't do that until I... Uh, started the following year at Weber State University in Ogden, Utah. Uh, I, I shifted to a business management degree, and that was my focus over the, the next three years, and, and that's what I, I finished up with. Um, I was fortunate to have many good instructors, and, and I really caught on to the concepts of business management and uh, ended up being uh, the top business graduate from the, the university. This was clear back in 1972, so a long time ago. But I would have I graduated from Weber State with um, the degree and an acceptance to the Harvard Business School. Uh, wow. I was only 21 years old at the time, however, and so uh, Harvard said, "Hey, uh, you're accepted, but we need you to go and get a little business experience before you come back here." And so I, I did that. So there was an interim period about three years. For one of those years, I worked as a 
Sherwin-Williams paint store manager in the San Francisco Bay Area, Livermore, California, to be specific. And it was my first turnaround opportunity. <clears throat> and over a year, I got this particular ranch of Sherwin-Williams making money, and that was fun. Uh, but I was then offered the opportunity uh, by an old mentor from Weber State to become the administrative vice president of what was then called Church College of Hawaii, run by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, uh, became Brigham Young University Hawaii while I was there. And I, I was offered the opportunity to be the controller, financial controller there. So I went over there for the next two years and helped them with a variety of projects. And when I finished those up, then uh, my wife and I and our, our one child at that time we moved to Boston and I went to Harvard Business School. My focus there initially was on general management, but over time I became uh, increasingly focused on agribusiness and wrote some papers and did some research on use of the futures market to do hedging, uh, to hedging profitability on a variety of commodities. And I had a good time with that and an opportunity to become a uh, research assistant doing work on the agricultural uh, infrastructures in both uh, what was then the Soviet Union and uh, Communist China. Uh, however, those were going to involve being away from my family for over a year. And so my wife and I decided that that wasn't conducive to a good marriage, so I didn't take that. I had a lot of interviews uh, for jobs coming out of Harvard, uh, most of them in the agribusiness area. Uh, surprisingly enough, though, the one that was most appealing to me was uh, Avery Label in Southern California. They offered me the opportunity for, to have P&L responsibility for eight different products, oh, and wow. that's where I ended up after Harvard. So that's kind of the quick uh, academic version. I did work while I was at Harvard for the Jewel Foods organization doing financial forecasting for them. So there was some connection uh, to agribusiness, but it was more in the retail end of things. Interesting. So you've done CEO Builder for over three decades now. Walk us through yes. exactly what did you guys, or like what would made you originally decide to start CEO Builder and how has it evolved and changed over the last 30 years? Thank you. That's a great question. Um, this started as a lifestyle business for me. Uh, you may have already detected that uh, uh, keeping my marriage solid is very important to me. Sure. And uh, prior to starting CEO Builder, I was on a plane all the time. I had started my own consulting business and it was really general management consulting. And I had uh, work all over North America. It's also on a national speaking tour, if you will, and uh, was speaking in most of the major cities in this country and some in Canada. Um, and for a while, that was a great trip and, and money was good. But after a while, uh, my wife and I at this point had uh, six children and wow. uh, she said, hey, I, I would really like to have you at home. Can you figure out a way to to be here and here was at this point Utah she's a Utah girl and we had come back to Utah and so uh, we sat down together and tried to figure it out and finally decided that if I focused on small businesses in the state of Utah and did 
CEO forums for these, these small business owners, entrepreneurs, and so forth, that I could probably build a business that would allow me to stay home. And initially, that was really, really challenging because uh, it was just a startup from nothing. And although I had a pretty good resume, um, it was uh, the Utah economy was not what it is today. Uh, you may have seen in the most recent uh, Wall Street Journal or two that uh, Utah has the top business economy in the country right now by a number of different metrics. Wow. But at that time, that wasn't true. And so um, it was really challenging to, to get started. But I did it in order to get off a plane, be home, be dad, do the things that need to be done for my family. So that's how it started. Um, from there, uh, initially, again, quite a grind to get up and running. But over the, the last three decades, it's become a real uh, labor of love, if you will, a passion for me. And, and I have just thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, but but it, it was tough getting it off the ground. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. So walk us through your value prop and how you work with CEOs and others, um, just on how you work with others. Okay, thank you. Uh, value proposition, uh, the, the short form on that, I'll give you that and then I'll help you understand how that was formed, sure. is learning in the moment of need. Now, again, those words mean a lot to me, but without some uh, definition, they probably mean much to anybody else. But as I work with CEOs as my partner and others who are part of our organization helping coach CEOs, what we're interested in doing is finding out what their current and most pressing need is, what's keeping them up at night. And we want to move directly to helping them uh, solve that need. Um, to, to make that more specific, uh, I, I like to tell the story about a phone call I had a number of years ago with a, a friend at the Harvard Business School, uh, Clayton Christensen. Uh, you may be aware of, of Clay. He sure, was yeah. a professor there in the business school. He's since passed on, but uh, he did, he, he wrote one of the real business classics of all time, Innovator Dilemma, and a number of derivations off of that topic. Uh, as he would speak around the country on this topic, he would say, if you ever find the disruptive technology to MBA education, please let me know because you'll put me out of business. And he would chuckle about that. And so I called him and I said, hey, I have it. And he said, oh, well, tell me what it is. And I said, well, let me start with a question for you, Clay. Did you take uh, calculus for economists? And he said, oh, sure. And I said, yeah, I did too. I said, do you use that? And he said, well, no, I can't say that I do. And I said, I don't either. And in the world of lean thinking, that's waste. Uh, it's wasteful to have spent time and money on something we don't use. And I said, I'm not knocking a broad general education. I have an MBA myself and a lot of general education. But when I'm working with clients, I don't want to try to impress them with the breadth of my education, but rather zeroing in on what their need is right now helping them find answers to that. And in saying that, I'm not implying that myself or my, my business partner or others that work with us have all the answers. We have 
what I call the right questions. In fact, the, the, our mantra for that, if you will, is we're not here to answer your questions. We're here to question your answers. And so in that questioning mode, we, we figure out what that need is. And then that may be something that's in our wheelhouse that we can help with. It may not be. But one of the things that I've developed over the past 31 years has been a number of great connections with others who are experts in a variety of things that I am not an expert in. So that if I find a need that I don't have something that I can immediately address myself, I can move them to somebody else. And so I've built what I call our faculty, which help us draw on the expertise of others to help them solve their problems, to help those, those uh, small company CEOs solve their problems. As a result of that, that value proposition, learning in the moment of need, as you might imagine, the needs change over time. But we keep coming back to the question, okay, uh, the world of running a business is kind of whack-a-mole. Uh, uh, we whacked one and we, we fixed it, but the next one popped up. What's your next need? What's the next thing that keeps you up at night? And how can we help you solve that? And so as a result, our average client tenure over the 31 years, we've averaged about 11 years with our clients. Wow. And often uh, the way we, we lose them is we help them sell their businesses and they move on. We do have, however, some uh, multi-generational businesses in, in the room uh, where the former CEO has retired, sold business, and the, the newcomer has stayed with us as well. So uh, that's, that is the, the value proposition to, to identify needs and to help our clients solve them. No, make, makes total sense. I'm curious, though, to get your thoughts on continuous learning, because when you're, you get busy, and, and especially if something is working in your business and you're making money, sometimes it's really challenging to take time out of your busy day to learn something new or try something new. So how do you work with companies and individuals to actually maybe get them to step back a little bit and say, you know what, like, sure, you're successful here, but, you know, there's this other thing that you maybe need to work on or, or learn more about because you're actually losing money here. Uh, yeah, again, great question. Um, I think we can all get a kind of anesthetized, if you will, to the fact that, hey, I'm doing fine. Uh, why do I need anything else? One thing that we have developed over the years is what I call our business success pyramid, where this becomes kind of a broad agenda of questions that we can talk to the client about. Uh, if, if you can imagine, of course, I, I don't have the graphic put in front of you, but if you can imagine that pyramid, at the top of the pyramid is that every business wants to make money. Uh, I don't care if you're a not-for-profit organization, you still have to pay attention to the financial. So that is, is critical. It's the top of the pyramid. The reason we show it that way, though, is that it is the ultimate lagging indicator of success. And so as you talk about, uh, hey, we're doing fine, one of the questions that I always ask is, fine's fine, but let's take a look at, at how you're doing relative to the industry. We'll do some oh, comparatives to your competition. Let's, let's look at uh, your, your P&L, your balance sheet, your cash flow statements, your cash conversion cycle. Are there places where we can help you with 
uh, the Japanese word is continuous improvement. So we can look at that. But again, remember, that's the top of the pyramid. That's the ultimate lagging indicator. So then we also talk about the next level of questioning is, okay, if you want to improve your financial outcomes, how well are you doing with your customer? Uh, are they loyal? Uh, are you always churning? And, and uh, is there a way that we can increase the amount of financial return from each customer? What is your value proposition to help them create a financial outcome? So the leading indicator for financial outcomes is what we do for our customers. And so we spend time asking questions at that level. The next level down is operations. The operations create the customer outcomes. So where the customer outcomes are a leading indicator for financial outcomes, they are a lagging indicator for how, what we do in our operation. And we do a lot of discussion questioning on lean thinking. What are your uh, key performance indicators? How do we improve both efficiency and effectiveness, effectiveness in, in uh, delivering to the value proposition? Uh, below that, then we look at the people issues. Are your people highly competent in delivering the operational outcomes that you need? And are they highly engaged? And you need both at that level. You need people that are, are obviously very skilled at what they do, but if they're not highly engaged, you're not getting everything you need. On the other hand, if they're highly engaged, but they're not competent, uh, you may have a, a nice party going on, but you're not creating outcomes. So that level on our pyramid drives operational outcomes, which drive customer outcomes, which drive financial outcomes. Finally, at the base of the pyramid is recruitment. Uh, we're finding right now that many of our clients are saying, as we're coming out of the pandemic, we need help on recruiting people in, getting ourselves ripped up again. Give us a good recruitment model. One of the things that I've been able to do with the now almost 50 years in business, uh, 31 again in, in CEO Builder, but I've been able to work with some of the top recruiters in the country, and we've developed our own hybrid model of great recruitment tools to help get the right people on the bus so that we can then build them into the competent and engaged people that you need who will deliver operational outcomes, customer outcomes, and financial outcomes. And finally, overarching all of this, and we show this as a big circle engulfing all of that period is company vision. How are you as a CEO, a great visionary to uh, be able to evangelize that value proposition to, to bring excitement and energy to your people every day? Uh, Michael Gerber in the email talks about uh, on the business versus in the business. Visioning is one of those critical CEO elements of working on the business so that you're in the business, people will be inspired and will help make great things happen. So I, that's kind of an involved answer to your question. But uh, as, as we look at it, this provides us with, again, a, a broad model of asking good questions and coaching our CEOs to success. No, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. I'm curious, you touched on something but I think, like you mentioned, a lot of companies are struggling with right now or, or will once kind of everything gets back to somewhat of a new kind of normal is, sure, you can spend a bunch of time recruiting good people, but how do you make sure that you, you actually recruit these good people 
keep them engaged and make sure they're competent to the three things in your pyramid. Because I think now you're going to, as a CEO or, or somebody in, in management, employees are going to probably demand a bunch more freedom. And I think the better employees or the better performers are going to probably be able to actually get some of those freedoms. If you don't allow them, your potential competition will allow them. And what I mean by freedoms is maybe not working nine to five or maybe working remote full time or part of the time or, or other things like that. What are your thoughts around uh, that? Uh, that is a huge contemporary issue. It, it's hot right now. It, it's so very important. Uh, because of what we've been through the last year, many, many have uh, become fairly adept at working on their own, and they appreciate the additional freedom of doing that. And so bringing them into an existing organization that maybe hasn't moved their mindset to how do we uh, not only allow this, but take advantage of it and make it work. Uh, this becomes so very, very critical. Uh, I, I read articles earlier this morning from, uh, I believe, Forbes and the Harvard Business Review on this very issue. And, and basically, they're saying, hey, companies, you better figure this out. Otherwise, uh, you're going to find people that either don't want to come on board with you or won't last long because if you try to bring them into the old traditional nine to five at the office, without some flexibility, you're gonna have problems. We are actually working, my, my business partner is a, is a technology guru expert, and we're working right now because of course, prior to, to COVID, uh, we were holding live forums and face-to-face -face coaching with everybody. Uh, we immediately had to adapt to using Zoom and virtual approaches so that we could connect. And what we found is it's actually broadened and increased our appeal uh, beyond uh, our local markets to all over the country and even globally, we're beginning to talk to people outside the country. So in a lot of ways, it's been beneficial. We're now getting some pressure from our appropriate pressure from local clients saying, hey, when do we go back to face-to-face? -face? Uh, most of us have been vaccinated. We're, we're getting ready uh, to, uh, we want so desperately to be back face-to-face -face with each other. But if we don't understand that we also have that that audience that is beyond our borders, uh, we will contract as a business rather than grow. So my business partner is tasked with the idea of creating a hybrid model that allowed us to go back to live forums and also have people connecting by virtue of uh, Zoom or other platforms so that they participate. And, and we have to make sure that that doesn't make them feel like a second-class citizen. They have to be fully engaged. So we're going through that ourselves as a business relative to our clients. We also believe that our clients are going to need this very much as they begin to recruit new people or, or bring people back into their organization. Uh, and we hope that maybe we can contribute something in terms of the technologies and the approaches that they can use. All of that said, we do come back to our core model of saying, make sure that you, you understand that recruitment is such a vital issue for you. Too often what I've found, small businesses especially, is, uh, boy, if you part your hair right or you smile at me, uh, you're my guy. 
uh, for whatever the position is. I had a client not too long ago brought me three resumes and he said, uh, Rich, pick the one that I should hire. And I said, uh, I wouldn't hire any of them. He said, but you haven't looked at them yet. And I said, did you use a, a careful vetting process to get these three people? And he said, no, I ran an ad and these are three that replied and I just want to hire a salesman. And I said, I, I think this is a terrible recruitment process. You need to be more deliberate and less decisive on this. The old uh, axiom has been hire slow, fire fast. And I said, I, I imagine you're going to have the experience of hiring one of these guys and you will fire them. And he did. Literally within 90 days, the guy was gone. I said, you know, uh, you wasted time and money on something that was flawed to begin with. You need to have a solid process of recruitment. And, and again, with uh, coming out of the pandemic, that needs to broaden itself to how do we work with people that are probably going to be some mix of remote or on-site, maybe fully remote. How do we get the very best out of them? How do we define the competencies they need? And how do we get them and keep them fully engaged when they're not sitting in the office with us? I don't have all the answers to that. Again, our, our uh, stock and trade, if you will, our tool we use is to ask the questions. I think the answers to that are often customized to the needs of the given uh, client, uh, given company. But uh, I, I think we just have to not ignore this issue and, and walk into it with our eyes open and help one another uh, come to the, the new normal. Uh, hopefully the new normal doesn't include any more pandemics in our, our immortal lives here. But this one has introduced some new things that I think we, we can't ignore. We've got, we can't go back to just business as it was prior to COVID. Interesting. I'm curious then, what's your thought or what are you hearing from business owners around the traditional nine to five workday? Because if you're having people work remote now or in different parts of the country, even if like everybody works nine to five, but they're spread out across the country or the globe, they're obviously not working the same your nine to five, right? Wherever you're geographically located. So what are your thoughts around that? Do you think it's going to change? Is it going to be a bit of a hybrid model? Or, or what have you kind of seeing? And I know it's kind of early on to maybe even give some predictions or thoughts, but is there anything that you've heard so far? Well, nothing terribly specific. And, and again, uh, one of the things I've learned over the years is that we can come up with some fairly standard answers on such issues, but you have to customize again. You have okay. to make it fit to each individual business. I would say this, just from my experience thus far, uh, we know that we're in the mountain time zone here, mountain daylight time now. Uh, for somebody back east, that's going to push them uh, for a morning a CEO forum. That's going to push them later in the day. And so they're going to have to probably do more juggling of their standard uh, timing to fit our monthly forum in. Uh, for somebody on the west coast or uh, we haven't got anybody from Hawaii yet or somewhere in Asia, but it, it'll go the other direction. And I think one of the things that you have to have is a strong enough value proposition that they say, hey, it's, it's something that I want to do. Now I'm talking from a customer perspective, but I think there's the internal value proposition for your, your uh, employees that says, hey, if I've got somebody in Asia, uh, they're going to have to set their alarm clock. They're going to have to make sure that they can 
headed in. Uh, that may demand that we push our meeting times to something different. Uh, and again, every every uh, corporation I think is going to have to recognize that we are more global than we've ever been, and that that requires us to make some adjustments. We've recently had a fellow that we've done a little bit of coaching with out of Jerusalem, and that we've had to both of us acknowledge that we've got to pay attention to the time clock and, and make it work. Sure. Well, and I also think too, yes, it, it can really change your perspective and, and things you need to do in your business. But if you were just doing stuff in North America, say, and now you have just opened up a global market because you figured out how to move whatever you're doing into that country, or maybe you can do it virtually, or you have software or something like that. If you just open up a global market and sure, you have to maybe make some time shifts around, you potentially can grow your business a lot bigger, obviously with a global market, right? And you might have a global workforce and just, there's a lot of pros, I think, that could come out of being more global. Yes, I, I think one of the challenges that I've seen with some of our clients, uh, with my own children, if you will, they're all adults now, uh, is uh, we, we look at the glass half empty with all the, uh, how horrible this has been. And I, I don't downplay the fact that this has been terrible in the sense that we've lost lives and so forth. But it has created an extraordinary opportunity for so many of us. And we, we need to prepare ourselves, if, if we haven't already, to take full advantage of it and to recognize that, again, we're going to have a change here where uh, we can get back to more normal living, but let's not lose the advantages that we've created. You know, I, I don't want to slam the door on relationships that we've built uh, beyond the borders of Utah. Uh, I told my wife when I started this the lifestyle business that when the kids were all grown, I wanted to grow this into something far greater. And uh, to a certain extent, it became, well, uh, how do you do that? Because you, you put barriers on, you said, well, uh, it's a face-to-face -face business. I, I actually had interest from people outside the state over the years. Uh, I'm reminded of a guy from Anchorage who called me and said, I want to be part of your forums and your coaching. Can you help me? And I said, well, we can do coaching over the phone at that point, uh, if that works for you. But for our forums, you have to fly down to Utah once a month. And he said, well, I'm out. Well, uh, he could be in now, but we don't want to lose that advantage. And again, as you were putting it, Kevin, uh, great opportunities that I think have grown out of this as well. But we need to see that glass is half full right now and, and move forward. So you guys have are developing and have developed a bunch of courses. Do you want to talk about some of those courses and who they're for? Sure, sure. Uh, some of these are still in development. We've got a, a, a course on corporate vision that we call Align and Execute that's uh, ready to go. We, we haven't marketed it yet, but we intend to shortly. So uh, we, again, feel that it's so important, uh, large business or small, that the, the person that's the owner, the CEO, the entrepreneur has the great and compelling vision. Uh, and so we, we have a course that is over six segments that help a CEO walk through how to do that. One of the things we've learned is that CEOs often want to see visioning as a check off the box event. 
uh, we believe that that's wrong, that it should be the, a part of a, a great process. And uh, it's challenging, especially if you're already up and running and you think, well, I have a vision, uh, why do I need to do this? Or uh, I don't know that I really need a vision, so um, why would I take the time? And so we, our first segment, if you will, says, hey, let's talk about why this is so important and how you can find the time to do it, because we acknowledge that you're probably already way busy. It would be ideal if everybody had a great vision before they launched their business and started with that foundation in place. We find that generally doesn't happen. They're already up and running and uh, we need to challenge their vision, help them make it more compelling and, and help them realize what a, an, a great piece of, of running a great company, having a great vision is. And we'll, we have great case studies of uh, Bill Kelleher at, uh, uh, Herb Kelleher, excuse me, Herb Kelleher with Southwest Airlines, with uh, uh, Walmart and some others where the, uh, Sam Walton created this great vision for his organization and there was a great evangelist for it. So that's one course. Uh, another course we have is on financial management, where uh, the first piece of this is demystifying your financial statements. What we find with most small business CEOs and owners is they are not CPAs, they're not accountants. Uh, for them, bookkeeping and accounting is a necessary evil. Uh, therefore, they are at risk of either having poor financials or, uh, heaven forbid, having a, a, a bookkeeper, somebody take advantage of them and even abscond with the funds. There's all kinds of risks that are involved if you don't do it right. And so we have that basic demystifying course that builds into some deeper levels of thought where a CEO can then say, okay, I know the right questions to ask those who pair my books. I, I know uh, where we're going. I understand industry comparatives. Uh, this strengthens their ability to be a great financial leader of their organization. So that's the second one. The third one that is in, in, underway and uh, not completed yet is on our recruitment process. But our intention is to build courses in all levels of that business except pyramid. Uh, we certainly will bring our own expertise to the table, but we will also draw on our, our what I've called earlier in the interview today, faculty members, those who uh, bring expertise beyond our own so that we can strengthen these courses and make them available to, to those who would like to, to learn from them. No, I, I think that's really great. I'm curious though, I, I like it's maybe maybe this is a stupid question, but because I think everybody can learn something and there's always something to improve personally, professionally, etc. But is there like some telltale signs that a company really needs to reach out to somebody like yourself? Or is it kind of everybody could benefit? Or when should somebody reach out to a coach like yourself? Well, you, you might not be too surprised that I would say, I think all of us need coaches, people that will uh, give us additional perspectives and help us grow in, in whatever role we're playing in life. I, I believe in that very strongly. I've certainly been a beneficiary of some great coaching and continue to be. So generally, I think, yes, it fits everyone. However, uh, what I have learned is that those who resonate with what we do at CEO Builder are lifelong learners. 
they they don't feel like they've ever arrived and so they're they're not put off or challenged by uh new questions in fact they they expect it they want it and and uh they're they're always looking to uh improve that kaizen concept again of continuous improvement uh if if they come to what we do without that uh they they're not going to be part of our our long uh lived clients the the 11 year plus people that we worked with over the years um you, you have to have kind of that seed of i want to always learn it's interesting though uh when i say that that probably 80 percent of our clients over the years are not what i would consider to be readers now some of them will listen to uh audio books uh you know uh they they may have a, a book on their phone uh, Kindle or whatever, uh, but they generally, if they have one thing they're listening to or one thing they're reading, that's about it. Uh, part of the allure of CEO Builder for them is that both my business partner and I generally will read four or five business books a month. Um, that is uh, challenging to say the least, but uh, I will also be honest, I love to read and study. And so as a result of that, I try to stay on the bleeding edge, if you will, of what literature is out there in, in the business area. The Harvard Business Review, uh, multiple books. I can share several of them with you that I'm reading right now. Um, these allow me to improve the nature of my questioning and my help for these, these folks. And they begin to rely on me as kind of their filter, if you will, of the things that they ought to be thinking about and, and even some of them will, will read some of these. So one of the advantages uh, that I think draws people to, to our organization is that they know that this is dynamic. We're, we're not resting on our laurels. This isn't Rich Tyson saying, I learned something at the Harvard Business School in 1976 that uh, is exactly applicable today. Some of those core principles may be, but by and large, you've got to keep learning. And so, our best clients are lifelong learners. But in saying that, I don't want to imply that they have to be reading four or five books a month. That's, that's critical to us as we are looking to grow our organization, build more coaches in. One of the first questions I ask of a candidate to be a coach, work with us, is what are you reading right now? What did you learn for it, from it? How can you help me? Should I be reading that book if I haven't already, uh, you know, coach me on what I need to know. And, uh, you know, that that's a pretty sobering question for someone who does not enjoy learning and, and isn't constantly doing that. Interesting. The one thing, and I, I kind of want your thoughts on this, and you could correct me if I'm wrong, is I've worked for people before, CEOs, that they're lifelong learners, they love learning, they're constantly reading books, and the one downside that I've seen some of them do, not all, is today they read something and it has to be implemented and they're, they're full bore towards that new concept or idea. And then tomorrow or in a week or two, they read something that's different and it's stop what we were doing for the last week. Now let's, I read something new, it's full bore on this new idea and they, they end up just like chasing their tail because they're always reading new ideas and trying to hit this moving target 
with, with before even try really trying out one new idea that may or may not work, how do you work with CEOs to, to basically not do that? Because I think that can make your employees disengage and, and potentially move on if it's always this mad scramble and there's never really a focus and direction of a company. That is a great question, and I'm so glad you asked. Uh, I call it flavor of the month syndrome. Yeah. And uh, it's, it is real. And, and what we try to do with that is be encouraging that they read and study and learn. But we also ask for their permission to challenge them on how they're going to use what they're learning. Uh, sometimes the answer to that may be, hey, this is good enough that you want to start working on that right now. Uh, to give you an example, uh, I think it's uh, Michael Kalowitz's book, Profit First. Uh, that is uh, a concept of setting aside some money in an account that you're not going to touch so you build a buffer against a, a, a tough day or, or even a, a bonus system for you in your company. Everybody ought to probably do that right away. I, I wouldn't hesitate to have anybody go ahead and do that. On the other hand, there are a whole variety of concepts that the very best thing I could suggest is let's think about where that fits and see in what context and when you might consider doing something there. I had a meeting earlier this morning where I was being uh, encouraged to do something that I said, look, uh, for me, well, I'm, I'm kind of in the client mode. I like what you're suggesting, but it doesn't fit right now. Let's put it on the back burner until August or September of the year. We'll take another look at it. But let's not get ourselves off track by pursuing something before it, it's merited. And so one of the reasons you want to have a business coach, a mentor, somebody to work with you is to challenge you on those things before you immediately go rushing off to them. And, and I, I see it, Kevin, all the time. It, it, uh, the flavor of the month thing is there. Lifelong learners are susceptible to it. But at the same time, if you have somebody to ask you good questions, to help you decide where it fits, to customize your thinking again so that it's the learning you need right now as opposed to, well, this is just another great thing to do. Uh, I got to check off all the boxes of what I ought to be doing everything should be open to reasonable questioning. I, I'm not talking about, you know, just bagging on your ideas, but rather to say, okay, if you did this now, it takes you off something else, does it not? Is this really something you want to do? Is this part of your, your core cause in, in your business or is this a tangent? And those are legitimate deliberative questions that ought to be asked. Uh, you know, we, we meet in our core model with every CEO for a couple of hours every month, and I keep a running uh, a record, if you will, written record of what we've talked about. I take copious notes when I'm with them so that I can say, okay, well, we were talking about this a month ago. You read the book. You decided to do this. Tell me more. How does that fit with what you're doing? And so I, I think the combination of continuous learning with the coaching is, is the best and, and most valuable model that uh, any CEO, any, any entrepreneur could have. No, I 100% agree with you. It's nice to have somebody to be accountable because I, I think 
especially as a CEO, when you're at the top, sometimes it can be kind of lonely, right? And sometimes depending on who's, who's under you, they may or may not feel comfortable enough to tell you what they really think, right? And I think adopting a culture where somebody that just started day one or somebody that's been with you years or decades can give you their honest opinion and you can have a conversation about whether they want you want to change things or not, I think is really, really important. And I, and I think it's really scary being a leader to openly admit that like you can be wrong or you should be challenged or like if you see something that we could do better, like bring it to my attention. A lot of employees don't feel comfortable bringing that up to leadership and or the CEO, right? Right. In fact, again, you hit on a key point that we work on all the time with our CEOs. I don't care whether you're a mom and pop organization and it's just you and your wife, or if you have a company with hundreds of employees. If you are the boss, if you're the CEO, what you say, even if you say it softly, resonates most loudly. And so it becomes so critical that you manage the process of how you build the strategic content of your organization. Now, yes, your ideas are absolutely essential, no question about it. But if you always present first, even in a soft voice, uh, generally speaking, probably 90% of the time or more, everybody will agree with you because you're the boss. And then you don't get the best ideas from everyone else. So the process of how you work on decisions and strategies becomes so essential that you start with your own questions of your people that, hey, we've been doing business this way. What do you see that we could do better? Or uh, I've read something recently, but before I share anything with you, I would like to know what you think about thus and so. Or perhaps even, I, I need you to read this book yourselves and then give me your feelings on how it fits within our context. It, it takes some real effort to rein yourself in and not to tell everybody the way it's going to be. And then so often what I see when that happens is then you blame others when you say, well, they just don't give me their best ideas. They don't take ownership for what we're doing. Unfortunately, too often the answer is you didn't give them ownership. Your process puts your ideas out first and they're going to go back. You know, you're lost. So you've got to back off and, and try to manage yourself, try to become more of a coach, a more of a facilitator within the context of your own organization. If you want the best ideas of people that work for you, you've got to empower them to give it. And if, if you don't do that, they're going to, uh, I was going to use the word stonewall. I think uh, that's too heavy, but they, they won't tell you. No, I, I think that's actually really good advice. We're, we're kind of coming to the end of the show, but is there any other advice that you would give to a CEO or leadership that, that you see maybe all the time that you either would wish they would do more of or stop doing? It's, it's not really helping them? Well, it's kind of embedded in everything we talked about, Kevin. I, I believe that uh, you need to have a trusted source of, of coaching, counseling, questioning, helping you. Uh, trust is, is hard one. 
it, it takes a while. Every new client that we get, we work very hard on the front end to build that trust, to, to let them know that we are really in your court. We want to backstop you. We want to help you. We want to understand what your needs are. And uh, again, those that are most current, most hot, keeping you up at night, making you feel lonely at the top, let's identify them and let's go to work on them. Uh, we realize that, you know, even with all the years of business and Harvard MBAs and all the rest, uh, none of that buys anything unless we can build a relationship of, of trust. I, I think that's also a good model for CEOs with their people. Um, I've been a turnaround CEO several times in my career, uh, things that I didn't uh, share with you in the resume. Uh, when I came in, rather than be the kind of know-it-all Harvard MBA, I've got all the answers. What I did was I spent a good month talking to every person in the organization and getting acquainted, building trust, and then saying, okay, uh, I, I can come in here with a, a whole list of answers. I, I've looked at the financials, this company's in trouble. But I, I didn't come with any answers to begin with. I, I have questions for you. Please tell me what you see and how you would fix it. Uh, often I had uh, employees say, really? You, you want to know what I think? I said, absolutely. Uh, I'm going to put you on the hot seat a little bit. Please tell me what you would do if you had my responsibility here. By doing that, I built trust. I built buy-in. And when I did come back and say, okay, here's what I'm thinking about doing. What do you think? Uh, I got support for it. Uh, now, that may sound like, uh, well, gee, you're, you're sure a, a softie in terms of how you're, you're approaching it. Uh, no. Uh, these, are, in my opinion, are hard skills that allow you to succeed. We're far better off if we can build trust and buy-in, and that goes for CEOs as readily as it does for me as a CEO coach. No, I agree. And like I remember distinctly going to um, one of the owners of a business that I worked for a number of years ago, and I don't even remember what it was, and I don't even remember the outcome. It was just... I went to him and I said, I, I really think we should be doing X. And he was like, you know what? I, I, okay, I hear you. I think it's a really good idea. I need to talk to my business partner. And you know what? We're going to get, we'll get you, give me a couple of days. We'll get you an answer, yay or nay, in, in a couple of days. And, and I don't remember what, the, what I asked or, or what the thing was. But what I remember about that is it, it almost didn't matter at that point, like whether you got a no because you would have an explanation why you got the no, right? And I think in a lot of cases, that's all people want is to understand why they're told, yes, we can do this or no, we can't do this because of X, Y, and Z, right? And that really always mm -hmm. resonated with me. And I still have huge respect and I've kept in touch with that person. And I haven't worked for him in probably 15 plus years, right? Like it's stuff like that, that I think employees really remember. I agree with you. And, and what he did for you, I believe, is validated you in the sense that not necessarily you had the, the idea that was going to solve a problem, but that you cared enough to bring an idea and he cared enough to, to give you that sense of validation that, hey, um, I appreciate that. Let me run it up the ladder. Let's see what we might do with it. And I'll get your answer. Uh, too often, employees are, are treated as if uh, just, just stay in your lane. Don't, don't do anything else. And 
I, I make the decisions. Uh, I wish it wasn't that way. Uh, that that is so old school that it it shouldn't even have been in the old school. It, it's wrong, but I guess human nature sometimes uh, causes us to to do those things. Uh, sometimes that's a function of the big ego of the guy in charge. Sometimes I think it's just not understanding that hey, if you validate others, they will continually bring things to your attention, help you solve problems. Uh, you get more out of them. No, I 100% I agree with you. But sadly, we're out of time. So how about we close with mentioning where people can get more information about you, CEO Builder, and any other links you want to mention? Sure. Well, uh, you can go to our website. That is www.ceobuilder, all one word, dot com. Um, that'll give you more information about us. Um, I don't mind if your listeners reach out to me directly, rich at ceobuilder.com. We also have a YouTube CEO Builder channel where uh, if you'd like to learn more about some of my business philosophies and so forth, uh, we have uh, we just started that a year to August, but we probably have 80 to 85 uh, videos on there. They're all short, six to 10 minutes, and uh, give you the opportunity to learn more about us too. We're not a hard sell organization, but we love meeting new people. And uh, uh, if you find some interest in what you and I talked about today, or uh, take a look at the, the YouTube channel or our website and would like to get in touch with us, we'd love to hear from you. And uh, we always are open-minded to comments that are contrary to what we believe. Uh, that's how we learn as well. So we would invite that also. Perfect, Rich. Well, I really appreciate you taking time out of your day to be on the show, and I look forward to keeping in touch with you, and have a good rest of your day. Thank you, Kevin. I sure appreciate the opportunity. Look forward to chatting with you more in the future. Me as well. Thank you. Okay, bye. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at buildingthefutureshow.com to join the free community, sign up for our newsletter, or to sponsor the show. The music is done by Electric Mantra. You can check him out at electricmantra.com and keep building the future. <laughs>